You killed our building! I was like, and that's what architects do. We kill your memories. What's architecture really about? Archispeak is a show that dares to peek under the architectural kimono, exposing what architecture really is, what it is that architects really do, and show you why we are passionate about our chosen profession. I'm Evan Troxell. Join Neil Pan, Cormac Phelan, and me as we have a casual conversation about all things architecture, which includes all the stuff people don't talk about. Think you already know what architecture is really about? Tune in to find out. Time for some Archispeak. All right, welcome to episode seven of Archispeak. And uh, this week we're going to be talking about Cormac took a little bit of time and, and posted some stuff on Facebook and Twitter. And we've also been collecting comments on our website at archispeakpodcast.com. And for everybody listening, you can follow along with links and Items that we talk about during this show on our website, and if you go to episodes, you'll see that here at episode 7, we're going to be following along there. Cormac, you recently have given some presentations to some third graders. Oh, yeah. Um, and to, I would like to also thank everybody on Facebook for you know jumping in and adding all of these questions. They were, they were fantastic. We got some great questions. Um, but kind of pre-show we were talking about all these different um uh questions and stuff and and i started thinking about some of the best questions that i actually get about what an architect is what they do and in their daily um daily world is when i go and give presentations to elementary schools uh the firm that i work for we do predominantly k-12 through schools and we do a lot of uh presentations and i also do a lot of career day stuff for uh, my kids and um, some of the best ones, and I, I wanted to share some with you guys, is uh, I had a recent career day um, presentation to a bunch of uh, third graders at Annapolis Elementary School. And um, I gave it specifically to the third graders because that's the school that we're currently working on. And we're doing a major renovation, addition, and a complete remodel of, you know, two historic buildings. And... Um, when we get finished and the students return to the school, those third graders will be the fifth graders. And I wanted to kind of remind them of what the school, you know, the school that they left and kind of give them a, a preview of what uh, school they're going to be going to. You know, gave them a, all the 3D models and, um, you know, all the graphics and everything that we normally present to the PTA and everyone else. Uh, but you know, after everything was said and done, we gave them a kind of a, just a Q&A on what it is that um, architects do. And they're the ones, third graders, more so than architects or adults, give some of the best straightforward questions about it. It's, there's no veil, no nothing. They just say, you know, one of my favorite ones is, is the normal one. How much do you make? Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't change. I, I I gave one to high school students about two months ago, and that was I gave it two different career day presentations. That was the first question it, out of both of them. Yeah, and, and so well, how do you actually answer that? Um, any of you guys? How do you, how would you, how would you answer that? <laughs> yes, question? Evan. How do you answer yeah. that? <laughs> I you know it was like don't do this for the money. I mean, really. Exactly. Exactly. That that's kind of the first thing that you say is is there is a discrepancy in what people think versus actuality for the most part. And and I don't mean to say that you can make a very nice living doing architecture. And so I don't want to give the the perception that it's that it's way off from that because I think you you can make fine money. It's not something that that you are going to do to become rich, especially working for an, another firm. Um, and that's not why you should be doing it anyway. I mean, if, if you are, um, I would probably question your motives anyway. <laughs> but it's, it's one of those things where, and, and what, how I try to explain it was, you know, you 
you either know that you are supposed to be doing this or you know that you are not supposed to be doing this and you should be looking for something else. Well, let's not also forget, though, that there are a number of architects out there um, that act as developers themselves and go out and and uh, develop their own projects. And there's there's money in that. Um, you know, it's it's not as easy as working for another firm just sitting there doing your designs and drafting and you know getting your projects through. Um, but uh, but there 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 can be money sure. in that, and and that can come from an architectural education and a background. Yeah, and you know, I think like I've I've told a lot of people about this, but you know, I learned a long time ago that. Nike hires architects to design their shoes. And so there is money in architecture. Um, and and if, if money is your main motivation, I'm sure you can find it. Um, but, but money is typically not the main motivation of people who are extremely successful in what I define as architecture. You know, they're in architecture because of the experiences that they're able to create and how they're able to change our perception about architecture and how we view the world, um, they find their success in that. And so sometimes money follows that, and sometimes money doesn't follow that to such a high level, but it it really isn't a, about that. It's about doing what you are meant to do more than, more than it is about making money. Well, that brings up another good, uh, one of the questions on Cormac's list here from the third graders was, you know, what's your favorite part of the job? Um, so that, that kind of, folds in nicely. I mean, if, if, if uh, part of what you enjoy doing is designing and, you know, building, building, th- seeing what you design and what you draw actually being built and then, um, you know, and, and having people uh, affecting their lives and uh, hopefully in a positive way. And you know, that, that can be, you know, a really great part of this. And so I know that's one of my favorite parts is, you know, seeing your vision, um, which hopefully uh, comes out the way you want, um, and you know, and then how that affects the people's lives. So a lot of the remodel or addition work that I do, um, you know, has a, a real impact, and and they're usually coming to me for they have a need, um, they don't have enough room, or they they want to um, improve a part of their existing house, and they just don't know how to do that. And, um, you know, so that, that, that can be a lot of fun affecting their lives and making it better. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, there, there's a lot of things that you just talked about that we could go into. And, um, Neil, I think that you have a great opportunity as working mostly in residential to affect people's home life. And I, and I, this is something that I've been thinking a lot about lately working in the public realm because, you know, I would love to work and do some residential projects because I, I I think architecture at its root is about affecting people's lives. And there's too much, and I don't want to call it architecture, there's too many buildings out there that people see, that they're just containers of space that they have to spend time in. And it's not something that affects their life in a positive way. And I think the the definition of architecture is affecting people's lives in a positive way and in a way that they probably didn't expect. And so it's something that creates an emotion in you. And that's really where, you know, and another question that came up when, when Cormac started asking about this online was, you know, when did you fall in love with architecture? And for me, it was when I... F- figured out that buildings can affect how I feel. And and when I went to Washington DC and I think I've talked about this in a prior episode, but it's it was the first time when I was in a public building where it sat me down and said stop and take it in and think about this and how does it make you feel? And it make made me say, you know, whoa, this is this is something much bigger than I ever expected. And, and, and I think not enough people get to see that or experience that. And that's something that I want to change that's well, out know, there in the public realm. I want people to be affected by it. And that's what art does to people. That The true definition of art to me is it makes you feel something. It can make you feel anger. It can make you feel happiness. It can make you feel peace. It can make you feel like you're a part of something bigger. Um, I, there's a lot of things it could do. 
Well, you know, my biggest thing is, and it kind of wraps into the you know, a, a variety of different questions that came from the third graders. But you know, I noticed that you know, my my pure joy of architecture is honestly, and and this isn't any cheesy response. It's the truth. It's every bit of it. It's watching the stuff that you toil over, you know, through meetings and scribbles on the table and in little post-it notes and bumwad and all of this other stuff as it moves through the whole process and it becomes a building, you know, and then experiencing that building through not just your own eyes, which is kind of a renewed view because you're you know, you've spent, you know, good example is this Annapolis Elementary years. School building. I've spent years on this so far, and, yeah. and we're only at 31.2% as of our last pay app through construction, <laughs> you know. Com- compare that to a, to a doctor or lawyer, another professional in the workplace who sees multiple clients per day. Oh, yeah, yeah. Right, and you're spending... I mean, for instance, I'm spending from 2011 until 2016 on the project that I'm working on. I started, yeah, I started um, this elementary school. We did our feasibility study in 2008. Um, We did our, actually, we did the scope study in 2008. Did a feasibility study in early 2009. Got board approval in 2009 to begin the whole process and so from 2009 to 2014 uh because august of two august of 2014 you know hopefully we'll be uh, handing over the keys to the principal and everything will be good to go but uh um you you basically become intimately involved with every aspect oh, of yeah, that project absolutely and it becomes one of your kids it, it, yes. You know, and the, and the interesting thing about it is, is that, you know, depending on the type of project, whether it's, you know, a complete renovation or a new project or, you know, the, the wonderful phase while occupied, um, I am working on another project that we're doing a phase while occupied, you know, rather, you know, complete uh, revitalization of the school. And, um, you know, I, I met as part of some of our uh, design process, you know, we interviewed the kids and I interviewed, you know, kids a couple of years ago that were, you know, first graders. By the time the project is done, they're going to be gone, you know, but, yeah. but I'm going to see their faces every Thursday when I go to these site meetings and owner meetings and stuff, I'll see these kids faces grow up and grow old as I'm shaping this building around them. And, and I think it's just a fantastic, you know, it, it, it's one of the best uh, things that you know I, I could imagine doing. I mean, I was I was listening to one of the things that you were saying, Neil, about you know just you know kind of this joy and stuff. It was interesting. The very first, I'm digressing here, but the very first cuss word that I ever said in my life was over a building. I was five <laughs> years old, and my sister busted me on this. But, um, and that's when you knew architecture it, it, was. You know what? It, apparently, that's when I did know because <laughs> I was I was watching um, some some steel get swung in the air, and there's probably some roof trusses. I mean, you know, I was five years old, so I didn't know what they were. But I looked at it, and I'm like, "Holy shit!" My sister looked at me, and she, "I'm telling dad," <laughs> and she did, and I got in trouble, but I was hooked. It was worth it. It was absolutely worth it. Yeah, I mean, that just reminds me. I, I see buildings going up around me in my in my hometown, and it's like you see that that primary structural steel going up, and you're like, "Oh man, this is going to be good. This is going to be good." <laughs> and and I, you can just see so many opportunities. And then what actually ends up happening is not so good, right? For the most part. <laughs> Yeah. But it, it, but that 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 uncertainty that you have when that like when you're a kid and you just see that opportunity and like wow and it, it's a it's a really cool feeling. Well, that that feeling hasn't gone away at least for me. No, um, yeah. you know you see the 
when you see um, you know something going up and you had this vision what it was going to be and you know and hopefully it turns out all right as we as I mentioned in our prior podcast sometimes it doesn't always work out yeah. but uh, you know you do have that vision that that's a great you know that's a great thing I always thought that would be a cool uh, studio project would be to take a halfway you know basically a building that has its its foundations and retaining walls and and primary steel and and then say okay studio take this what can you make out of this mm. that would be very good um the, the project went bankrupt very and and then what what can you do with this and and i think it would be a a wonderful experience to see 30 different perspectives take on the same bones of exactly. a project you know and that's and a, where can you take it and that would be actually a very i i think that's any professors listening out there that would be a fantastic one because no 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 that's for the archa speak studio that we're going to run right there you go i like that <laughs> um uh, that'd be perfect archa speak conquers the world <laughs> we've trademarked it already <laughs> that would be great because i mean think about it i mean that is a great concept because you know so many times we have to work in such demanding constraints and what better way to push i mean we always have to take these constraints and push our creativity what better way to introduce students to creativity um with the ultimate constraint when you're all starting with the exact same bones what can you do with it and right and watch 30 different um, creative minds just go at it and just create. Oh man, that would be fantastic. No limits, right? Yeah, I th I think that that's one of the the things that I I tend to gravitate back toward is the constraints of the project. Even when you're done with the project, you as the designer, the project manager, you know what those constraints were, uh -huh. but you also know that. People who are going to experience a project are not aware of what those were. Um, for instance, I worked on a a building on a community college campus that was a high school with a, within the community college campus, and there are so many constraints within there. Um, you know, there were seismic zones. There was there was these invisible items, and if you were to go there and experience the building, you might say, you know. Why did they hang the library on a second floor over nothing and cant the columns underneath? Um, with and, and you would never know the answer to that if you were just to show up one day and 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 see the building. Um, and I'm wondering if that's kind of something that architects could help tell the story of their building, um, either either to the users, which you know the users may be aware of it, but they may not be or in a kiosk kind of a situation in the building, but how do you tell the story of how you got to that final place with the building? Because I think that I think that those stories help kind of propagate ownership over that building of with within the user group. Um and I think, and I think that that's what helps architecture um be a, become interesting and important to people who actually sit in those buildings every day you start a podcast evan yeah that's how you do it. <laughs> for every building you dedicate an episode yeah well you know you you guys talked earlier about the projects uh that you guys typically work on and how long they take in you know years and and that's not always, that's definitely not always true in residential i i do know some projects that uh um Actually, I was involved in one, a very small project, actually, that did take almost two years, two and a half years before it was uh, completed. And that had a lot to do with the, the clients and the, and the jurisdiction, actually. But, um, you know, a lot of residential projects, you know, can take just a few weeks sometimes um, or just a few months. I mean, when I, when I did production housing, you know, we would do sets uh, for entire tracks of houses um in you know 12 to 16 you know weeks or so um you know three to four months we would start do it and submit for a permit in 12 weeks and so you know and that's three or four plans three or four elevations 
And, you know, I know a lot of people listening probably across the United States, and I don't know about other countries with their production housing that they have, or if they have it. But, um, you know, on the, on the West Coast and in other other areas, I've seen some really nice stuff. And out here, uh, we do um, some of the um, areas that I've worked in, you know, have a pretty high design standards. And, and it's still production housing, so it is what it is. Um, but they're not just stripped down stuff that you might see in other parts of the country. There's a lot of detail and a lot of design that goes into the houses. And, um, you know, so those types of projects, though, can still only take a few months. And that's not necessarily for construction. But, you know, I mean, in an entire development project, because I also worked for builders doing, uh, you know, final maps and planning and stuff like that. I mean, we would basically start a project and within a year, you know, break ground. And, you know, within a few months after that, we've got models going and, and we're selling. So, you know, a lot of these types of projects can take place in a much faster time frame than yeah, larger and, public projects. Yeah, and retail retails a lot like that too. I've done some retail and it and it it goes so fast that uh it's it's a similar experience to that. All right, guys. I'm going to I'm going to be the taskmaster here or the listener. bring it back. I'm going to bring it back to our list here. Um because cool. we did have some uh, really good questions um, submitted, and I do want to. Um, I want to hit you know a, a few of them, you know as many as we can in the a lot of time that we want to do it. Um, but I, I want to. I, I want each of us to to ask a couple of um, go through and pick out some of our favorites of this list. But one that is always my favorite, and it it comes from everybody that I talk to about architecture, whether you're four or 40, they always ask, do architects have to be good at math? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, you know, I always tell them, well, I be, you know, I mean, I always start everything with a joke. Um, and uh, so, you know, I was like, well, you know, I got into architecture. So I, you know, because I wasn't good at math and they're like, what? You have to be at math, and of course you've got to be good at math. But, you know, math is just a part of the overall, you know, list of things that you have to be good at. Um, it's not like we are dealing with math all the time, but we are dealing with the critical thinking that comes with, you know, solving a good math problem or, you know, whether it's uh, you know understanding and interpreting a book, you know it's it's all of these different things. So, um, so what do you guys think? Do architects oh, man. have to be good at math? Well, well, first of all, yeah, I think that's a myth. I, you don't you don't have to be good at math. Um, but when I was in school, when I was in high school, I think that's every guidance counselor's um, assumption. Is yeah. that if you are good at math, this is a field that you could go into. And I took calculus in high school and I did so poorly in it. It was, it sucked. I was very good at math up until that point. I mean, I, I, I was a very good student in, in everything until calculus. And, and, and it, you know, honestly, it had a lot to do with the teacher. But I went to tutoring because I was, it was the first class I ever got a C in. And, uh, it was, it was heartbreaking. But then when I got to Cal Poly and the prerequisite for the entire five year program was trigonometry, mm, yeah. I had to realize it upon myself, you know, that it, it was the guidance counselors were wrong. Wait, and you, go ahead. I was just going to ask, I mean, you're, you're, um, program only required a trig trig that was really? it and i took it at a community college Man. i mean i had already taken it in high school damn but i took it you. at a community college to to get the you know the grade in it so that i didn't have to take it at cal poly i had but, to take calculus because our other prerequisite was physics with calculus see we had to take physics but we didn't have to go above trig hmm. it was it was it was interesting but and that's when i thought high school guidance counselors don't know anything <laughs> because I wouldn't have taken it in high school and had such a bad experience with it. I, 
I probably would have ended up taking it anyway to somebody who was really good at teaching it, you know, and, and, and had a much better experience with it because well, it, I, yeah. I wish I was better at math now, or I wish I had held on to the concepts like I did when I was in high school, when it was so natural for me, right. um, because I think it would help balance the artistic side. Um, I mean, if you look at Santiago Calatrava's work, who is an architect and an, en- and an engineer, it's, it's amazing work. And I think that it yeah. it gives you a leg up but when it comes to design. He's, he's not doing it to balance his creativity. He's doing it because he wants to control his fees. Well, and it's his, it, it has everything jo- to do I'm with jo- his, his approach and his brand. Yeah, but, no, no, but I'm it's, only joking. But it is beautiful to look at nonetheless. Oh, absolutely. Uh, yes. Well, I, I think... You know, do, how good do you really need to be at math? You know, you need to you need to be able to do the basics. Um, you know, I'm not so sure I really needed that entire year of physics or calculus. Um, you know, maybe at Cal Poly, at San Luis Obispo, we had a, a really good physics physics course. It was uh, actually, I think, it was even titled Physics for Architecture, and it took the concepts, and, and that's why we were required to take the basic physics courses. Um, but I think that probably was a little little more than we really needed, uh, because essentially we were taking the physics courses with the math majors. And, you know, they were hard and, char- hard and charging on, you know, math major physics. And I was like, you know, I just kind of un- understand how buildings move. And, you know, and so the, the, the third class really address that the arch, the physics for architecture um but wow that whole year of calculus i think that was just like a lot of wasted time on at least for me you know i'm, I'm not calatrava so uh and i'm and i don't engineer my own buildings I, you know at, at san Luis, we also as separate which i think is was great was we took um we took the classes for um engineering and so that included things like um you know wood design and and steel um design and also concrete design and i'm not so sure how much of the physics was directly related to those courses i can't remember but i don't remember a lot of that it should have been a lot so well no it should have been but i mean once we had the basic formulas the, the, the and the concepts of how you design in those materials you know, I guess, the, I don't know, maybe I'm just forgetting. It's been a while. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I guess it did help. Um, you had to maybe know the basics, but, wow, a whole year of that stuff, that was pretty brutal. Well, well let me ask you this, because this, this is actually a follow-up question to the do architects have to be good at math? Because both of you have talked about, um, you know, structures one way or the other or engineering one way or the other and you know and then kind of bringing it to um one example of calatrava and how much do you guys um actually design or are actively involved with the overall design of your structures um and i'm not talking about just you know okay here's my shell I'm going to pass it off to the engineer and the engineer is going to basically think it out and, you know, get back to me and say, okay, well, you know, we're going to need to have a cast in place concrete wall that's cantilevered because it needs to be a um, two hour rated wall. You know, I'm not talking about, I'm, I'm, we, at one of the firms that I used to work for, in fact, it was the, uh, one of the first ones after graduation, worked for a few before, but this was the first one after graduation. We never passed off our building to our engineers until we at least fully laid out the overall guiding concepts of our structure because we wanted to always maintain, um, you know, because a lot of times we would do exposed structures and things like that, and, and we always wanted to maintain a, um, you know, kind of that, that, aesthetic control over the the structure and i'm just curious how much do you guys do that now um 
And is that something that you guys concern yourself with, or is it something that you just collaborate with the engineer, or do you have like a, I don't really want to say overbearing kind of control of it, but do you um, do you do a lot of guiding to the engineer? You know, for me, it really kind of depends on the project. Um, for most, you know, remodel type work uh, that I've been doing mostly the last few years, uh, it's not critical. Uh, a lot of that's going to be hidden. There's nothing really fancy going on. Um, we don't have a lot of exposed things. Um, so it's it's not as important. Although I will say, that that being the case, though, when I'm designing it, I understand the concepts of how essentially it's going to lay out. I may not have, uh, you know, exactly how it's going to go, but I understand, you know, hey, I can do X and I can do Y because I have a basic understanding of how this can be put together. And so, um, you know, so I'm not necessarily laying it out for them, but sometimes I will actually, and some sometimes that'll come back to me. But when I've done higher end custom work. Uh, there's been more interaction with the with the engineer because things are going to maybe be exposed uh, and 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 there's there's much more of a customization going on and so you have to do that um, at least at least that's what I've mostly been involved with but when you're doing you know residential just a lot of production which I've spent a lot of my career doing there's very little of that that you're really directing it. But that's, again, based on the type of work that I've been doing. I, I would suspect with Evan, like, you posted a picture today of this most amazing um, uh, three-dimensional section perspective of a building you're working on now. And I, and I was just like, wow, that's a great study model. And obviously, you have to have a very good, a decent understanding of how that can be put together in order to generate even the model. Yeah. and I. You know, I think, Cormac, you kind of laid the groundwork in the question of how I tend to work with my teams. And this leads even back to the math question, which is you have to have a really good sense of what it's going to take to do it, even if you don't understand how to do it yet. And, yeah, and it's agree. kind of a, an instinctual feeling. That you have when it comes to, okay, number one, you know, I, I kind of know the rules I'm playing by. This is a CMU building. This is a wood building. This is a steel building. This is a concrete building. Okay, so where, where do I fall within there? What are my, what are my spans? Um, when you start to think about engineering, you know, you're thinking about spans and depths. And then are you thinking solid girders? Are you thinking trusses? Are you thinking what kind of footings? Are we thinking moment frame? Are we thinking brace frame? Are we thinking shear wall? Um, and, and so I think that, you know, what I'm going for is I'm not trying to think as a designer with a capital D, which we've talked about way back in episode one or two, I'm thinking as an architect. And the as the architect you are in charge of and i don't even in charge is maybe a little too strict but it's you are overseeing all of the disciplines and you have to be aware of kind of the the ground rules that everybody has to work within and so when i lay out a floor plan you know because i i think the planning of a building is so important um, I will spend a lot of time working out the planning before I get to the form making, um, because if you can solve plan, if you can solve issues in planning, that's the best place to solve them before you get to actually making the form. If you can capitalize on the planning to make form that inspires people and enhances the solution to the problem even better but it you know a lot of times when it comes to form people get stuck in style and mm. that tends to hold form making back because yeah. style is a dirty word right i mean it's like you want to solve the problem you don't want to fall within a this is me speaking 
you don't want to fall within a stylistic preference. Um, if you can avoid it, that's great. Um, but sometimes you can't. And so even if you're forced to go down the style road, you've, you've made a really good building by doing your job in the planning. Um, but so, so right after the planning is done, that's when I want to bring in the rest of the team and say, okay, how are we going to accomplish this structurally? How are we going to accomplish this with mechanical? Um, and then, you know, these guys, are are really fun to work with and it's a huge opportunity at that point to say well what if we do this well what if we do this well and 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 you most of the time my experience is those engineers will say we can make this work and that's when you think well then how can we push this a little bit further and Mm -hmm. get even something better and that is a, a great experience to go through and it's it's really great if you can drag your client along with you through that experience because then they start to see the value in the process. And I think that's something that's kind of underlying this entire conversation from the third graders on up who are asking the questions, um, you know, why do you do this? And, and, and I think it has to do a lot for me with the process that we go through. It does take forever, you know, in quotes, to get these projects done. And that process can be um, the thing that really takes it to the next level. Um, And that's what I, you know, when it comes to bringing in this team and collaborating, um, it can make that the whole thing so much more enjoyable when you're all working toward making the best thing you can in that process. What were some of these questions that you guys gravitated to that, you know, you're like, oh, you know, I I definitely want to, touch base on that one. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm going through this list um, and I, you know, it's interesting. I mean, we've, we've hit a lot of them without actually have. having to read them out in kind of the rigid manner. We, I mean, you know, you were just talking about, you know, forming a team and, you know, we got a, a great question from, from David that, you know, was like, you know, if you could form a team and, you know, you kind of asked a couple of different questions and, and I think just, you know, in the dialogue of the last answer of how you, you know, go about, um, you know, approaching it, uh, approaching a kind of a, you know, structural concepts, um, you know, I think that kind of like started to wrap into some of those questions. But I did want to actually bring up this one, and it was from Jason, and um I'm definitely going to pass it to you two because you two are like the tech gurus here. Um, oh. Mac or PC? Jason, oh. yeah, Jason, let's say the whole name okay. here. It's Jason, let's say Rostar. He wanted to oh, know Rostar. Mac or PC, Revit or the field. And, uh, okay, so if you're, if you're saying Mac or PC, Revit or the field, well, if you're, if you're Revit, you're PC, right? True. For now. So, until uh, Revit, is, you must know something that that we don't. <laughs> from what I, I, the rumblings, you know, I mean, this was something that, you know, when AutoCAD left Mac and said, "Fine, we're taking our ball and going home," and and didn't build a plat, you know, didn't build um, uh, AutoCAD for the the Mac. They, you know, right. they said, "No, we're not going to do it." And then fourteen year absence, fourteen yeah. years, they. Uh, rebuilt it. Um, now, I, I can complain that they've got two completely different user interfaces, um, but you know, in a in a way, you've got two completely different mindsets of users with, um, between a Mac and a PC. So, you know, the the thing I like about that, I don't I don't have the opportunity to use the Mac version too much, but even though I'm on a Mac, um, so that answers the Mac or PC question, but. I think it gave them the opportunity to say, "Well, what would we do?" Right. Starting from scratch. Well, I can I can shed a little bit of light on that because I was involved in the beta program for the Mac version. And in going in and talking to them, um that's they communicated that to us pretty directly that they have a long-time user base on the PC and making changes to that interface um disrupts a lot of people and really upsets people really? and 
I'm um, sure it's really oh, painful yeah. for people they on their yet Every time they come out with a new release, they change the damn user interface. <laughs> well, you know, they're they're trying to improve it. And they're trying to improve it in ways that, you know, tries not to. I mean, for example, I, I complained to them about the um, the preference dialog box and the different ways to set preferences on a PC. And they they kind of just sighed and said, yeah, we don't like it either. But every time we try and do something or make that an improvement or suggest it, it we all get shot down because of all the the you know everybody's used to it and they know where to find it and then when you talk to somebody like me who hasn't used windows uh, autocad on on a pc very often it just frustrates the hell out of me and i i will say this i i do use the mac version um when i have to do autocad pro- projects and i found the new interface that they designed for the mac uh to be a great mac interface i mean it it allows me to actually do discover how to do things um, that I didn't know. I in fact, even when I consulted in an office, I I went to some of the guys that had been using AutoCAD for like a decade, and I'm like, "Hey guys, didn't you know you could do X or you know whatever it was?" And they're like, "Oh, how do you do that?" And I'm like, "Well, I don't, I'm not sure exactly how to do it on the PC, but on my Mac, I do it like this." And they're like, "Wow." How did you know? How did you know that? Yeah, and it's like, well, you know, because the interface was just uh, so much better. I have to in give my up, opinion. I have to give Autodesk credit because of all of the the stuff that they're releasing on iOS oh, for yeah. the iPad. Absolutely, it, oh, it's, they're hitting that big time. It's amazing and it's fun, and it's it's something for all ages, and it it kind of allows people to create things I've on seen, their iPads. You know, that I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, it's just it's fun, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's way beyond what Autodesk is known for, which is creating these high end, um, high precision, very expensive tools. Um, right. So I really credit them on this direction that they've taken, and uh, at the same time, I mean, Auto AutoCAD is a dying piece of software for the most part. I mean, everybody's moving toward BIM. We see the value in that. Um, and and on the Mac, it's like, well, why didn't you just go to Revit instead of going to AutoCAD first? But I think to them, um, they still see a life in AutoCAD. Um, oh, there's a big life. Yeah, yeah sure. Yeah. There's a big life still left in AutoCAD. And one thing that it comes from the frustrates people. the heck out of me is, is architects are the slowest dinosaurs to move on to the next thing. Oh yeah. And and that's why they probably do see so so much of a life in in AutoCAD still. Well, I can, you know, also shed a little light on um the why um you know, they 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 did AutoCAD first is because it it's their it's their most dominant product. Yeah. And and to and to see if there was enough of a market to support development uh, for AutoCAD on the Mac, you know that that they they kind of just said, "Hey, this is our biggest product, and let's dip our toe into this market again with our biggest product and see if there's a market." And I can tell you, they've been pleasantly surprised Good. at how well received the product has been. Uh, even um, now, they have AutoCAD LT for the Mac as well, and it's sold exclusively through the uh, the Mac App Store. And it's a thousand dollar program. Now it's a quarter of the cost of of the full blown AutoCAD for Mac, and they were delighted at the number of people. And I don't have any numbers, I and mean, they didn't share that sort of information with us. But they just said they were just ecstatic with the number of people that downloaded essentially a thousand dollar program uh, with a no. With I mean, on the Mac App Store, you you don't get a, a free trial. 30-day trial or anything. Right. Um, now, you can pick up AutoCAD off their website for a trial and do that, but and students, of course, can get it for free. And um, But they, they were very excited. And, and I think that with that sort of level of excitement and with the growing nature of the, the Mac market in general, you know, kind of the halo effect of the iP- iPhone and iPod and, and iPad, 
that uh, I, I'm hoping, I'm, I hope that, uh, you know, Autodesk will see a benefit in trying to bring products like Revit or other, some of their other design tools because they, they've brought AutoCAD to the Mac, but they haven't brought AutoCAD for architecture or AutoCAD for civil. You know, the, the specialized packages or tools that they sell um, are just not, they're not available. So the AutoCAD you get for the Mac is, is well, basic AutoCAD. They're moving away from that, though, too, because like the newest Revit um, 13, it's all one Revit. There is no more Revit structures, Revit mechanical, you know, and civil engineers don't use Revit or AutoCAD. They use MicroStation. I mean, or civil 3D. Or, or civil 3D. But, um, I mean, they, right. you know, I, um, but so they're, they're probably not bringing that to, re, um, to the Mac because they're probably preempting the, the notion that they're going to just wrap all of this stuff up together. Now the licenses become more expensive, but, you know, you actually get a lot more power packed, um, uh, program when you, you know, you're wrapping them all together. And one thing that I noticed early on when we were starting to, you know, merge our models together from, you know, Revit mechanical and Revit structural into our Revit architectural model, you know, that you'd, you'd have clashes and conflicts that um, were just kind of quirks between the, you know, the different programs. And even though they were from the same place and the same company and it was technically the same platform, there were just those little quirks that kind of created all those weird little clashes and conflicts. Um, and now that they've, especially for 13 now that they've rolled everything in together um you're the project that i'm working on right now we don't really see as much you know issues as we have you know everything people can build off of each other's model um a lot easier and you know it it seems to work a lot a lot more you know seamless but um i did want to say one thing about you know when you were talking about the AutoCAD being kind of like the the dying breed, and one of the things that I can just substantiate, um, not from the business side, but from the construction side, uh, Neil's point, um, more and more detailers and contractors are requesting the CAD drawings um, because they want to, you know, at least use the base drawings uh, that we create or at least export out of Revit if, if that's what we're doing or straight from uh, AutoCAD. They want to use that as kind of like their baseline for all of their shop drawings, um, which goes to a completely different, uh, you know, topic, which is uh, how do you control, you know, how do you control the stuff that you've created? Um, you know, we've like I, I, intellectual property. Yeah. yeah well, I, I, I was sending today, I was sending out a bunch of, um, CAD release forms, uh, that, you know, basically talk about, you know, it's a whole boatload of different legalese and liability, um, waivers and disclaimers and things like that. And then of course, you know, there's the fee of, okay, we're basically doing, we've already designed the building. Now we're doing a portion of your work for you. But what we're doing is we're, you know, preparing those documents by cleaning them up, taking a lot of like notes off, ensuring that, you know, it's either compressed or, you know, you know uh, bound and, and stuff like that, just so that, you know, you're getting exactly what you need and nothing more. Um, yeah, I just I just did the same thing with just, it. I just prepared a CAD file for a for a CNC piece of a project that, you know, it's, it's a. It's a series of wall panels that need to get CNC'd, and I want to make sure they get done right. right. So, yeah, I'm going to give you the base files, <laughs> but at the same time, it's like you you are doing part of their job for them. Yeah. Well, do you uh, does your firm send out CAD release forms to make sure that they sign? And, you know. Oh yeah. Have yeah. like you know uh, disclaimers and, and waivers and you know legal liability. You know, you are assuming the legal liability. Um, with use of this, uh, you know, file and blah, 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 and all this other stuff. I mean, do you guys do things like that? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we even have, I, I've even seen it on a, on a school that was recently completed where the contractor, the, the GC on the project took all of the CAD files. I mean, even though we had done the full project in BIM and so had structural and so had electrical and mechanical, 
they rebuilt their own BIM model of the entire project so that they could do all their own clash detection and make sure that everything was going to work out okay. Um, And that was just like mind-blowing to me that that they would go to that length to kind of show the owner that they were proactively trying not to, you know, go after change orders and give the wrong impression. Well, that's interesting. That, that, that's, yeah, that's, it was. So, so let me just uh, I'm trying to wrap my brain around this because, you know, we, we have a longstanding argument with contractors about, you know, BIM and, and as-built and everything. And that, so this, they took all of the drawings before they started construction. Yep. That's, that's, uh, I, I like that idea. And, in fact, and, actually, and as they were going along, you know, they were they were building the fire sprinkler system into the project because our fire sprinkler consultant had done it all a single line. And so they actually went in and built the fire sprinkler lines to make sure that and they came they found areas and they said, OK, it's it's not going to be able to do this right here because you've got a structural member in the way. So what are we going to do about that before way before? the guy came in to install fire sprinklers. So, I mean, it, it was kind of a, a, a very proactive approach to building the building before they had to build the building, yeah, right? Yeah. So that they could make sure that they were going to do it exactly the right way. Well, guys, I'd, I'd love to do a, like an entire show, I think, about different CAD programs and some of these things. Yeah, the technology I think, side of it. Yeah, then technology side of it. And I know that was that's been one on our list for a while and I I'd love to yep. I'd love to do an entire show about that. But I think to kind of wrap up some of our uh questions for tonight uh, and and for this podcast, I think it'd be fun to answer one of these ones from the third graders, which is if you weren't an architect, what would you be? I think that's always a fun one to to consider. So yeah. Cormac, how do you answer that one since you, you get that question? Um, you know, I told them... We know the answer. I would be sad. <laughs> I would just be... <laughs> You'd be drawing comics. <laughs> I would be, actually. You know, I, I, well, you know, I told... I, in fact, I was... A lot of the kids that are in this particular um, school, they're all... Because Annapolis has got the uh, Naval Academy there a lot of these kids are military children. And, um, you know, so I, I guess you can kind of say pandered to the crowd and, and told them about my military experience and how much I enjoyed it and stuff like that. And, and, you know, probably if I weren't, if I didn't pursue the path of architecture um, early on and was bitten by the bug that I was talking about, um, I, I enjoyed being in the military i i actually if if architecture was taken out of the equation because i used the military as a means to an end to get because i wasn't quite the you know most studious of kids in high school and uh you know i I knew i wasn't going to be earning myself a scholarship but i you know knew what i wanted to do and felt like I needed a lot of like growing up and and also just kind of, you know, perspective, you know, I, I wanted to kind of get outside of the box of the neighborhood that I grew up in and, you know, really never left. Um, and I wanted to get kind of a, a slightly more worldly view. Um, but I always had architecture in the back of my mind as this was what I was going to be doing. Um, but if I took that out of the equation, and just looked at a lot of the things that I did when I was in the military, and it was just a fantastic experience. And I probably would have stayed. Yeah. For me, How about you, Evan. For me, it would have been you know one of two things. I would either be building things. You know, I've I've always wanted to build things, and as an architect, I get to decide what and how something gets built. If I weren't an architect, I would be, I would be making the things. You know, I'd be a fabricator. I'd be a, I'd be a builder, um, or I would be a musician. You know, I, you guys, have Aren't you, you are all heard the, the music that we we tag on the end of these. 
podcast and that that was a band that I was in and and when I was doing that um there was nothing better I mean when you are and I, th- I think it's it's kind of like this for all artists when you are your own client and you are writing music or you are making things that you want to see um and people are just paying for that because they love it too they're not telling you what they want that that's the best feeling so i mean that that's kind of an easy answer for me it would it would would be one of those two things well you know i've had um an interesting experience over the last few years i've i've gotten to ask myself that question quite a bit and you know I, I think I, I don't know exactly how to answer it, to be honest with you. Um you know, having the economy the way it's been and and finding work has been a challenge. Um I've often thought, well, what else would I do? And I keep coming back to I don't know if I can do anything yeah, else. True. This is just what I do. And um I, I can't imagine doing anything different. You know, I mean different aspects of the project. I mean, uh, Cormac's mentioned, you know, the process he goes through and how he enjoys all aspects of that. And, and I enjoy that as well. And, and there's different avenues to get those experiences and that, that we can do. And, and then I've done that. And, but I still think there was a time when I first applied to Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo where I said, well, okay, my, like my preference is architecture, and if I don't get into architecture, maybe graphic design. And I think that kind of, maybe that does answer the question for me, is I would still be doing some sort of design, and whether or not it would be three-dimensional with a building, or two-dimensional, or perhaps three-dimensional with a product or something, I think I would still always have been... um in in design somehow and in, in, in some way, I, I think that the permanence of architecture is what sets it apart from other artistic endeavors like graphic design. You know, it's it's there's something about a building. You know, and, and when we're designing, at least we should be thinking fifty years down the road. Um, one of the things that is so you know graphic design is a is a beautiful art and there's a ton of meaning behind it but in today's society it's you know on the web it's it's so impermanent it's it's passing almost and and that's unfortunate i think well but i think that's what leads me away from that toward something more permanent like architecture but isn't graphic design you know essentially you know, capturing the flavor of the moment. I mean, that it's taking your... Not always. But it's it's taking your artistic abilities. I mean, I, I think we've all kind of hinted that we all love graphic design. Um, you know, I mean, doing things like website design and cards. We and probably appreciate it more than a lot of people. Probably, you know. And, and so that's, you know, because we're, you know, the creative bunch, you know, um, and we chose a job that is, you know, in, in the creative class and all that other stuff. I think that we, you know, gravitate towards things like that. But I, but I honestly think that, you know, um, with graphic design, I mean, it, it kind of, it, it's almost like the social art, you know. It's capturing the flavor of the moment. And that's why it's always changing. Um, you know, it, well, there's a lot of architecture like that too. That's just well, fashion. Well, that's true too. But then yeah. that's usually the stuff that um, either just gets torn down twenty years exactly, later. Exactly. Um, <laughs> well, you know, it, um, just look at what's going on with New York with Billy Sane's building. Oh yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> I wanted to actually uh, um, bring that up and you know ask you guys what you think about that. You know, here's a building. It's yeah. 14 years old uh it is you know it's it's on the cover of their you know one of their books it's you know uh it's used as a great example of this textural um you know modern architecture and 14 years later the people who paid to have it built wanted to de- demo it 
because it doesn't fit the style of the rest of what they're doing. Their their overall vision right now, it just doesn't fit anymore. Yeah. Wow. It's heartbreaking. It is. It is. I mean, you know, when you think about it, you you because we all know the process that it took, you know, Todd and Billy to get to that point and to be able to like, you know, I mean, they sweat over that. They went through Do all we know the- how many hundreds of people they had to convince? Oh, uh, oh. probably <laughs> thousands, you know, really. I mean, because they're on, you know, one of the biggest stages and you know, to face the criticism of, you know, the architectural critics and the media and everybody else. I mean, it's just, it, it, it's, you know, it, yeah, and 14 years later, like, all that work, guess what, guys? It's got to go. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, let, let's wrap this up. Um, this has been, this has been really fun. And I, and I, I, Again, like like Cormac said before, you know, thank everybody for for writing their questions out. And you know, there's some that we didn't get to, but hopefully we will in a in a follow up podcast. And uh, because there were some really good ones, and I think that some of the some of the questions take take a lot more thought, and and we will definitely be thinking about those things. Um, but but overall, I think that that I'm I'm glad that people are are putting stuff out there and they're, they're giving us stuff to think about just as, as you know, the things that they're thinking about. And they, they, and I, and I really appreciate that they, they want to know what we think about it. So, so thanks to everybody for that. Um, thank you. Yeah. You guys can, can follow along with the links from stuff that we talked about in the podcast at arcaspeakpodcast.com. And we have a Facebook page, Neil, what's, what's the address for the Facebook page? Oh my gosh. It's facebook.com slash, I think it's Arcaspeak Podcast, but there's the, there, if there isn't a link on the website, there will be. Yep, there um, is. There is, there is one. So that's probably the best way is go to the website, click on the link, and, or if you're on Facebook, follow us, or I guess they don't follow online. Uh, I got to get my, uh, my names right for the different social medias. Uh, I guess it's like us on Facebook, and then you can, uh, certainly post there and, you know, even ask questions and we can kind of try and respond to some of those via Facebook or even via Twitter at our own individual accounts or on our main ArcaSpeak uh, Twitter account, which there's links for those also on our website. So the best way is go to the website. It's all there and uh, you can interact with us that way. Cool. And you guys can also follow us on Twitter at ArcaSpeak, A-R-C-H-I-S-P-K. And I want to leave off with one little question that maybe people can think about and post, and that is, what are your obsessions? I think that uh, that's something that I heard this week from one of the people who asked a question, Houston. He he was in uh, UCLA's graduate program, and he said the first um, week that he was there with Neil Denari, um, one of the questions that was asked was, what are your obsessions? And I thought that is such a cool question. So I thought we should ask that to the ArcaSpeak community out there. What are your obsessions? Go ahead and post that to us on Twitter, on a comment on this uh, podcast, or on Facebook. That would be awesome. So, uh, Neil, how can people find you on Twitter? You can find me at Twitter uh, at my first initial N, last name Pan, P-A-N-N. And Cormac, you can find me at Archetype. That's A R C H Y underscore T Y P E. And you can find me. I'm Evan at E T R O X E L, and that's on Twitter. All right. We'll see you guys next week. Bye bye. All right. Bye bye. Bye. I used to shy away. Stampede, I'd hibernate, hunker down in my heart at all. To get good at the game, I had to grease up my fire gear and that craving came. When you cross the lawn, yeah, when you came along, gentle dog dared me, turn the sprinklers on, barefoot in the driveway, baby. Platform. 